Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 109 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon, February 6th, and Steve, the state of the podcast is strong. You know, I was I was going to make a joke about how the, the, state of the, the state of the union is unity, but, you know, President Trump and I have different definitions of unity. I don't think we have unity. We have unity on the podcast. We have, we have respect. We do? Yeah. Oh. Unity of, uh, of mutual respect on the podcast, True. even if not agreement. Uh, unity of unity of bad baseball team fandom. We do have that. Uh, unity of a Longhorn uh, affiliation. And uh, you know, we both agree that this podcast is a big, beautiful, strong podcast. Indeed. We are, we are unified in our, in our perhaps um, unique view of the merits of this podcast. I think we should make our colleagues all traipse in here and, you know, with the sergeant in arms announcing them, the dean of the law school. The, 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 wait, the, the James Baker chair. Yes, that's right. We get to, get to shake hands, glad hand some people. So I, I will say, I, I do think that um, it's always amusing to me when our colleagues discover that we have a podcast. Oh, did that, did it come uh, I'll, be, I'll be in conversations. I was like, yeah, Bobby and I are going to go record our podcast. You and Bobby have a podcast? I can't say I'm too surprised it hasn't got their attention. Um, I, I think some of them are still sort of, you know, getting over the, the Ford administration. There, there, may, there may be some podcast, general podcast unfamiliarity. Indeed. Um, you know, What's I a podcast? Say, so with uh, State of the Union, I really enjoy watching, uh, as you know, I like ceremony. And Indeed. I really like it. Uh, pomp and circumstance. Pomp and circumstance. I'm all for it. Um, and I enjoy watching certain aspects of the of the pregame show. It's kind of not as fun once the talking starts, but I like watching uh, people. Uh, who's talking to who? I like watching the various non-legislative officials come in there. Although I gotta say, I don't think the Supreme Court justices should attend, and I definitely don't think the Joint Chief should be there. I, I think it's. I think it, so. So I I felt this way long before I. Well, I I have felt this way now through multiple presidents of different parties. Um, the State of the Union is a charade. Um, it is a pointless, empty spectacle. And indeed, it's worse than empty because I can only imagine how much money we spend on the overtime for staff and on the security costs of the event. When all the Constitution actually requires is that the president, you know, send a message to Congress every so often recommending those measures he deems expedient. That's what it largely used to be. I, I disagree <laughs> that it serves no purpose. I actually think it's... Uh, from a, a ceremonial purpose, there is, under uh, normal norms of governance, a lot to be said by having everyone in one place and having that face-to-face communications. I mean, frankly, if I had, if I had my way, we'd have PM's questions, right? We'd, have, <laughs> we'd, we'd actually have some direct engagement. Um, question we, time is the best. Question time would be would be pretty wonderful. We're not going to have that. We don't have that. But I think it is. I think there is something important symbolically, and there are occasions where it's really warranted. And I like it that it's just a regular thing on the calendar. Hey, speaking of question time, should we do an AMA podcast sometime? Uh, I'm worried. I'm worried we wouldn't get many questions. But if listeners actually think that um, that you would reach out to us, give us a sense of. Uh, whether there's any market for that. We Cause I know, cause I know the Lockdown podcast did an AMA, and it, I think it went pretty well. Yeah, you know, so Ben in particular, but Ben and Susan and others have such a, a large footprint now in terms of followers on Twitter and elsewhere that I think when you open it up to an Ask Me Anything format, they can really pull it in. You probably could do that for us. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much... Uh, I don't know if I don't know if there's a separate team, Steve, team Bobby, but I'm not sure how much my <laughs> my peeps would be uh, uh, if we have quite the footprint that you've got. But the, you know, it's, we I, could I don't, try. I, I won't pay for any of the software, but there are these. Apparently, there are these fancy you know websites now where you can actually like see 
overlaps in Twitter followers, um, and like you know what map map the networks of of followers and followees. I suspect that my the Venn diagram like my circle would be like this. Fully subsumed with maybe just a little bit of edge outside of yours. Like I'd say a little bit of edge. There, there'll be a little of edge, but there wouldn't be much. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I I will have some infosec, yeah. some cybersecurity stuff that you. And know, I'll have some crazy lefties who just you know like like it when I rail about the president. I what I what I'd love to know, and yeah. I'm sure there's a tool that could do this. Insofar as there's a good tool for mapping your social network and and trying to make judgments about the ideological tilt of it, mm. I'd love to know. I of course my dream would be I have a a, a very evenly balanced <laughs> uh, sort of you know bell curve distribution, um, and I'd love to know if that's what I've got or if instead it tilts one way or the other. I harbor no such illusion about the even balance of my of my followers. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. So um, we're, we're vamping a bit because it's actually not that news-filled of a national security <laughs> law week. Um, we actually thought about we, – we almost thought about doing a whole episode on frivolity. Yeah, but we decided, in fact, there are a few substantive things to talk about. So here's what we will talk about before we then indulge ourselves with what I will describe as a full-spectrum <laughs> Super Bowl review that encompasses the football the halftime show and the commercials. Wait, we're talking about the halftime show? I'm going to talk about. Oh, the, you no. know, I have opinions about this. I mean, I, I have one opinion about the halftime show, which <laughs> it is sucked? it sucked. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> I see mean, unity. I mean, the, the real question. I mean, you know, we'll get into this, but like, you know, I I was really hoping that the halftime show would at least be entertaining, unlike the first half. Like, <laughs> All right, see, hold your fire. Um, All right, but see. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just jump out on them now. I thought by far the best ad was the NFL 100 ad. I will say nothing until we get to our first. Oh, um, coy, coy yeah, devil. Yeah, that'll keep them hanging, no doubt. Mm. <laughs> what a teaser! All right, so we are going to talk about a few things. Um, first of all, uh, we do have a DC Circuit ruling in uh, the Clayman versus Obama case. Whoa! So under the heading ostensibly about surveillance law, but this is really just a uh, mootness and standing right. case. Clean it's, up. A, it's a it's a it's a cleanup case, but we have a few things to say there. And so that concerns that's, that's never stopped us before. <laughs> exactly. That will be our springboard for talking a bit about uh, bulk metadata collection and section seven oh two and litigation efforts to challenge that. Um, we have a, a bit we will do talking about the uh, prospect of drop off in some uh, media coverage of events at Guantanamo in light of things happening with uh, which entity was the uh, potential layoffs? McClatchy. McClatchy. I can't keep track of all the potential media. Why? Is there something about this time of year? Is it like Groundhog's Day related that this is when you fire all your reporters? I mean, I'm not an expert on on the politics or the economics of the media business. I wonder if it's just like the a first mover problem. And now that, you know, a couple of the publications, like BuzzFeed got out in front of it. Oh, and, so like they took the, hate, the heat for daring to fire. But and now, now it's now it's Because like, it does seem like a bit of an avalanche. Um, we will have a bit of a Supreme Court uh, you mm. know, pending cases preview. Uh, I, I, I have a vested interest in one of those pending cases. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Larrabee is, Larrabee is going to conference next Friday. And then finally, we've got a bit of a counterterrorism uh, review, both on the prosecution side and the use of force side. We have a, we have a, a small note on one case in uh, a sentence and in a material support case. But then to pair with that, we also have uh, the potential unwinding of what a decade ago was a fairly famous or reasonably famous material support conviction um, where a magistrate judge in California is recommending a decade later uh, mm-hmm. vacating the conviction. So that's really something. We'll explain that. And then we'll take note of uh, just sort of a, hey, look over here. Don't forget what's happening here. And we're just going to do a quick rundown of the pace of recent airstrikes, U.S. airstrikes in Somalia against al-Shabaab. Uh, that uh, sounds like a lot, actually. That's actually a lot. Not a lot to say on each one, but mm. it's a good spread. So uh, which one do you want to do first, Steve? 
let's dive in somewhere. All right. Uh, you know, why not? Hey, let's start in Somalia. This will be a quick one. Um, it is something we remark on the show from time to time that the United States continues to be engaged in the armed conflict model of using force against Al Qaeda and associated forces at various spots around the world. The place where the pace of operations, as near as I can tell, seems to be greatest, and, and I'm, I'm very much excluding the Syrian theater for the Islamic State. I'm talking about um, you know, the other areas that used to be the sole focus of our attention before there was the surge of the Islamic State. Um, it's Somalia these days mm-hmm. and, and al-Shabaab. So this is just going to be a quick uh, recitation of recent dates on which Africa Command, which is the relevant regional combatant command, has made a public statement describing U.S. airstrikes against al-Shabaab members. Um, And some of what I'm mentioning here, uh, the announcement covers multiple days' worth of strikes or multiple strikes on the same day. So the number is larger than this. Uh, But, well, February 5th, that'd be yesterday. February 2nd, January 31st, January 24th, 19th, the 9th, the 8th, the 7th, the 3rd. Okay, so 2019 been busy. Um, and if you look back into 2018 to see if, if maybe there was a new year thing going on, well, December, we had December 20th, December 17th, the 9th, the 5th, the 1st. And what about November? Same thing going on back. We have been, I didn't go to find like, where's the tipping point where the current pace seems to have accelerated. Um, there's no question we're making full, <coughs> uh, full airstrike use of the combination of policy and legal frameworks that we have there right now, which are, to wit, one, um, the determination made late in the Obama administration that al-Shabaab organizationally counted now as an associated force of al-Qaeda engaged in hostilities against the United States. And that was that was sort of a sea change. Before that, all the, uh, the strikes against al-Shabaab were always predicated on individualized connectivity to uh, to Al Qaeda, or else uh, based on some kind of claim of you know swooping in self-defense of or defense of the Somali government in the event of a looming attack, that sort of thing. So you would expect that move towards full associated force status to lead to an uptick. I think it has, um, but we also have the fact that the uh, Trump administration, which did not fully abandon the Obama administration's presidential policy guidance or PPG, which is shorthand in our world for the idea that. For some places where al-Qaeda-associated forces might be, we don't treat them as zones of active combat operations, and therefore we it's not that we don't think that the law of armed conflict applies, it's that we layer in some additional policy constraints. Um, I believe the Trump administration in 2017, 2017, I think, made the decision that Somalia would be categorized as active combat operations, mm-hmm. and so wouldn't be subject to those additional constraints. Those two pieces, one piece in Obama judgment, one piece of Trump judgment, come together and you add to that um, provocations from al-Shabaab, like the horrific attacks they carried out you know, outside of Somalia not long ago. And I think, no surprise, you're seeing a high pace of operations. The only thing that's really interesting here, as far as our topics are concerned, is that most people don't seem interested in this. I, mean, I think that's right. And, and, and this is actually, this is a common theme, I think, of our topics on today's podcast. It's just, there's really important stuff happening and there, I, I don't know, Bobby, if it's a fire hose problem or if it's just a, you know, it's not a dramatic enough break from what had been the status quo, but just the, the, the waning public interest in U.S. 
military operations around the world is is disheartening. Right. A- apart from Afghanistan and, and Syria, right? And, and even there, right? I mean, the interest had largely waned until the president right. provoked it right. and, and, and rekindled it. So this, this leads directly into the topic of media coverage of Guantanamo. But let me preface it by saying that on this show uh, and on Lawfare and elsewhere, I have, I have been sort of sounding, I've, I've been expressing my view that we really aren't keeping our eye on the counterterrorism threat picture as mm-hmm. much as we should, mm-hmm. because for whatever reason, because because the Islamic State had emerged as such a central feature of it so suddenly that as it has been pushed back, uh, at least territorially, it's become tempting to assume like, okay, well, it took the whole problem set with it, when of course it hasn't, as illustrated by this pace of air operations. But of course, it's also true, it's true both that we're no longer prioritizing in the national pace of top-tier media coverage and in the national dialogue, the threat, we're also not prioritizing um, examination and watchdogging of what we do as a government to respond to that threat. So it's both sides, the threat picture and the, the, the war on terrorism or terrorism prosecutions and Guantanamo and all the rest. It's all kind of fallen off the front burner. I think that's right. And I think part of it is, you know, we are law professors and lawyers. And so we tend to look at these issues through the lens of concrete legal developments. Um, And those only take a couple of forms, um, a new statute or a new executive order or a new court decision. Um, And of course, those have been on the decline uh, in this space over the past, I mean, just steadily on the decline, right? So so part of the trickiness is so much of this is happening in secrecy, um, right? Or at least either um, out of public sight, or at least in a, in a in a place where the public doesn't care to look. The this part, you mean? You mean the underlying events that are not the legal events, yes. but the actual policy developments, and the, and the, and not just the policy developments, but also the the on the ground impact, right? I mean, the kinetic impact. Yeah. So so there's there's both the sort of reduced amount of legal sparks for discussion less attention paid, both for for lack of coverage and lack of interest. And those are, of course, in dynamic relationship. If the media writ large senses that there's not a lot of eyeballs and clicks and interest uh, in public uh, examination of these issues, but there are the, there is that interest for other things, and that's where the other big piece of the puzzle is. We have these bright, shiny objects newly emerged into our sky. Right. Trump, the wall, cyber, China. There's there's all these things that, in fact, you and I talked about this in the parking lot yesterday. <laughs> these I express the view that that sounds more awkward than it was. No, this is this is what we do. We like we talk on the show for recording, and then we just keep talking. Indeed, and then people stay away from us. No, the the idea that these are all, in fact, very worthy first tier issues. The things that have displaced the attention that terrorism and Counterterrorism used to have um, very much worthy candidates yeah. for that attention. I'm not suggesting they're not, um, but but there is sort of a rise and fall, and it looks as if the terrorism issue set on both the government action side and the non-state actor threat side uh, has, has fallen off the front page. So this is and that so I think that's a good segue to the Carl Rosenberg story. Yeah. Um, so on Monday, Eric Wemple um, posted a piece uh, for the Washington Post uh, about. Apparently, these a round of proposed buyouts that McClatchy is offering to a large number of its more senior reporters, um, including Carol Rosenberg, who we've talked about briefly on the podcast before. I think I can safely say this is the only reporter um, whose beat is Guantanamo in uh, the country. That, that seems that seems right. So, do you, I don't know the particulars. So, it was senior reporter specific. In other words, is it possible what McClatchy is trying to do is to free up? Comparatively highly paid and experienced and valuable, but comparatively 
comparatively being yeah, the key word, right. highly paid uh, journalists. And then is there some sense that like then they can do more hiring at sort of the lower levels or is it it's just not clear. a money saver and it, they're it, trying it, to buy It's not clear. Out? I mean, it's, it's not clear whether, for example, they would intend to replace Carol with someone else on the Guantanamo nice. beat. But even if they were, I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say Carol is Guantanamo's institutional memory at this point. I mean, you know, the military officers who are involved come and go, the senior administration officials who are involved come and go. Carol's been there since January of 2002. I, I wouldn't say she's the only person. She clearly has has institutional memory about what's been going on all this time, but there's a lot of other people to do yeah, too. No, that's, I mean, I, I, um, I'm not trying to put anyone else down, but most of those other people don't publicly well, speak about what they know. I, I'd say she's certainly the journalist who yes. has the greatest depth of knowledge, no question about that. Do you, do you think somebody might, it, wouldn't you imagine and if this does happen yeah. somebody might try to jump into those shoes then i i mean so th- this is the this is the conversation i wanted to have like separate from you know i think the eric's piece said that carol has till february 19th to decide whether to take the buyout and of course the the risk is if you don't take the buyout you might get fired um without any kind of a similar generous retirement package right. um but I, I don't i don't my point is not so much about Carol, who I think has been invaluable. And, you know, just as the most recent of many examples in Nashiri, we wouldn't have known much of the facts um, with regard to Judge Spath applying for a job as an immigration judge, but for Carol's uh, uh, work. But, because she was filing FOIA requests. That's right. And, 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 and sort of pressuring the government into, into filing these stories. I think the larger question is, um, and I got into a fight with someone on Twitter about this, you know, as a as a as just a business decision. I was so hoping you weren't going to actually add on Twitter at the end of that. Yeah. I was sort of imagining you're like coming out of HEB and you're doing a shot. No, it was on Twitter. Somebody starts arguing with you about <coughs> Gitmo media coverage. So, I mean, it was it was on Twitter and 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 the 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 commentator was basically suggesting or the commenter was basically suggesting um, that any rational, you know, sort of neutral um, media business person um, would not think Guantanamo was worth it, um, right? That that of all the things to cover and of all the places to send mm-hmm. your limited budget of journalists and resources, um, that Guantanamo just isn't an important story anymore, that nobody cares about Guantanamo. And, and we've talked about this before. Sure. And, and I guess I just, you know, Part of so part of me chafes at that in the sense that um, I think that journalists are some ways responsible for what's important and what's not, and so there's sort of a chicken and the egg problem. Part of me chafes at that because I don't think that it's the job of journalists simply to go where the you know clicks are, right? That that um, it cannot be that the only stories worth covering are the ones that will generate the most public outcry. Like they're you know that's never how I've understood journalism. Of course, no. The, the problem is it's not the job of any journalist to just. In fact, it's antithesis to the job, right, to just chase what do people want to hear about. Right. It's like what should be covered. Um, but it is the job of someone who's trying to keep a publication from going out of business to pay some attention to that. And so, listen, so, the, the so, so there's a much larger conversation in which I am not remotely qualified to have, to participate, um, about the sort of crisis of journalism right. funding in America right now. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't mean to sort of, you know – I don't mean to go down that, that. No, but we all understand the general outlines of what's happening there. So the interesting question to me is: Let's assume that that she she does take a buyout and you know goes off and enjoys uh, you know the fruits of, of her labors in that respect. Um, there does certainly need to be some kind of organized effort to try to get back some of that granular 
there's a person who's credible, who's there watching and communicating in detail what's going on through live tweeting and through reporting and through other means. And I can imagine, for, like I can imagine, for example, you know, having a somebody who's a fellow at Lawfare mm-hmm. who's who's basically hired uh-huh. to go down there. And so, you know, if that sounds like your dream job, you know, hit us up, let us know, make your proposal. And if it turns out that's the only way the world's going to know all the granular details and you're prepared to go live with the iguanas, well, maybe that will be... Uh, Maybe that'll be a solution to it. I, I don't know what the solution is going to be, but all I know is that I think a world where there is not a sort of non-party, non-partisan—I well, don't mean partisan—but a world in which there isn't a neutral observer. Well, you need a, a, a real journalist like right. you need an. A, it, there will always be, of course, at least some of the some of this will be observed by observers from advocacy groups. Yeah, and, and that's that's important. But you but there's an axe to grind there as well. Well, and also, and I, don't, and I don't want to just hear the the military spokesperson right. or the human rights watch observer. No, no, right. I you, like them both. You need but the, I'd like you a need journalist. the you need the professional journalist. And and I and I do and I think it's worth stressing. And I think Guantanamo is a context where having the experience of having been there is uniquely significant because of how complicated things have gotten, right? I mean, someone diving into like al-Nashiri today, (laughs) which is just like one of the 30 stories that you'd want to be keeping tabs on if you were the a Guantanamo yeah. beat reporter. I mean, I can't even imagine how you would, you know, read up on all the twists and turns and just and nooks and crannies. Just listen to back episodes of the podcast. This is so simple. I got news put for you, buddy. We are not on two times speed. We are not exhaustive. <laughs> we are exhausting, but yes. not exhaustive. Yeah. That would be a good title. Suffixes. Have... Yeah. <laughs> exhausting, awesome. but not exhaustive. All right. Have we exhausted... Uh... Have we made our point? I think we made our point. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't deign to tell Carol what to do. I, I hope she stays on. You know, I think, I think we are all, all of us who care about Guantanamo, but I think it's a larger group of people than may appear at first blush, are better off for Carol doing what she does. Um, and I just, you know, maybe we'll be able to sort of stumble into a, 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 a least worst alternative to Carol, but you know I don't think that anyone could actually replace her. So I think that there's uh, here's what I think is going to happen. Um, I think there will continue to be relatively li- with, with Carol as the obvious exception as we just described. There'll be little attention to all the pretrial stuff, the nuances that go on, the hearings that are even for us really hard to keep up yeah. with. Um, but on some distant date in the year. 2027 or whenever things become trial focused, when it really starts to zero in, if and when there's a 9-11 trial, for example, there will be a lot of journalists who, once it gets to that stage, will cover trial. So what's really at stake here is whether or not we're going to have a journalist who's more or less there every day when in court pre-trial proceedings are occurring, mm-hmm. which is, frankly, that's what the life of the commission's been for the most part. Yeah. That's where the action's been. All right, and that'll continue to be the case for a while. <sighs> All right, so turning away from Guantanamo, but still thinking about people associated with terrorism, let's talk about those terrorism prosecutions I mentioned. Yeah, seriously. So this is sort of under the heading of National Security Division Roundup, I guess, our recurring feature. Uh, first, a quick note of a uh, uh, 15, uh, as expected, 15-year sentence imparted to one Eric Jamal Hendricks of North Carolina. It's a case we've mentioned before, so we're just now giving you what the sentence turned out to be. 15 years for attempted provision of material support to the Islamic State. As you may recall, the Hendricks case is um, involved a guy involved in social media recruiting for the Islamic State, talking up the Islamic State, eventually getting involved in a plot to carry out attacks in the United States. Um, 
15 year sentence is basically, you know, the statutory max in that situation. It's just what you would expect. Um, so that's a win for National Security Division, but there's a much older material support conviction, one that frankly uh, predates National Security Division, I'm pretty sure. The old Hamid Hyatt case. This is, this is uh, one that used to have a ton of attention, a case that was somewhat controversial. This, so this is out of uh, Lodi or Lodi, I'm not sure which, I think Lodi. Lodi, uh, Lodi California. Um, a uh, uh, Pakistani-American guy who had uh, spent his teen years in Pakistan, then come back to California. Um, there was an informant, a guy working with FBI, and he was definitely on the hunt looking for people who might be of interest from the Al-Qaeda-type perspective, and eventually came to focus in on Hamid Hayat. Uh, he was recording conversations with him. I, I think it's kind of clear from the recorded conversations that Hamid Hayat certainly said some uh, all kinds of terrible things and disturbing things, you know, anti-Semitic stuff, anti-American stuff, <coughs> pro-Jihad stuff. Um, the interesting question was, was he ever actually, when he sometimes went back to Pakistan, was he going to go to a training camp of some kind? And, and if he did so, what he, if he came back, was, was he going to get involved in actually something violent himself? The U.S. government took the view. So he, he goes to Pakistan. He comes back. His flight's actually diverted to Japan because he's on the, the watch list. Eventually, he's brought back in the United States. They start interviewing him. And there's these long interviews, and they're very rambling. And he ultimately says inculpatory things. But the transcripts of these, these uh, interviews do create a lot of questions and doubts about just exactly what he understood was going on. So there are some things he says that look deeply inculpatory and, and other things that in context, much less so. One way or the other, he, he got convicted um, long ago. I think he got a 20-year sentence. I think he's like 13 years into the sentence at this point. So I believe this all unfolded around 2004, 2005. Um, well, lo and behold, in January, so his direct appeal is long since exhausted, but he's now on collateral attack. And, you know, it's 13 years later, the litigation's still going on there through habeas. And a magistrate judge has issued a report and recommendation, which is to say the magistrate judge got the first crack at considering this attempt to vacate the conviction on various grounds and then generates what we would probably characterize and you'd characterize it as an opinion if the district court issued it, but it's not final. It has to be adopted by the right, district It's a recommendation. Court. It's an R&R. So magistrate judge issues the R&R and mostly rejects the various claims uh, Hyatt had made but recommends vacating his conviction for ineffective assistance of counsel, basically. Uh, and the, and the argument, it's a hundred plus page opinion. I won't try to summarize it all for everybody else. Suffice to say that it, this underscores the importance of ensuring there's good, fr from a Justice Department prosecutorial perspective, the importance of ensuring there's good defense counsel mm -hmm. so you don't have your case come unwound 13 years later. After the fact. In this case, the, the problems have to do, uh, at least in the eyes of the magistrate, we'll see if the district court agrees, uh, have to do with alleged failures to make adequate efforts to procure uh, alibi witnesses who, who now seem to be available and, you know, really put into question some key parts of the case involving whether uh, Hamid Hayat had gone to training camps while in Pakistan. So the absence of those al alibi witnesses obviously just certainly didn't help the defense. And the, the magistrate concludes that it was actually ineffective, ineffective assistance of counsel to locate and put forward that evidence. And further, that there to was To fail a, to do so. To fail to do so. And further, that there was a conflict of interest because the attorney also represented uh, Hayat's, uh, I think it was his uncle or his father, right. I forget which, uh, another relative who was on trials or who was 
under uh, charges as well. And so, you know, we'll see what happens, but that'd be really something uh, if it gets thrown out. And of course, the, this, depending on how long it takes to resolve this, I mean, the, the guy will have time served at a certain point anyways. Um, which leads to another thing you and I talk about sometimes. You have a lot of post 9-11 material support cases that involve yeah. sentences between 10 and 20 years. A lot of those cases are not that far from having their terms run. And so over the, over the years to come, we're going to start having this whole slew of scenarios that are now you're free, but once you were convicted for material support, and it'll be interesting to see what becomes of some of these cases, right? Because we've seen this country lose its mind over recidivism. Right. I'm doing scare quotes around recidivism. <laughs> um, but it's a serious topic, for yeah. sure, obviously. Um, recidivism in the Gitmo context, and it'll be very interesting to see if you get any sort of narrative that begins to build up sort of uh, surrounding these people who have completed sentences for terrorism-related cases. I think that's right. I mean, you know, the, we talked briefly about a month ago, I think, about the also the consequences of Demaya um, on some yeah. terrorism prosecutions, right, that, that the Supreme Court has reinvigorated vagueness challenges. Didn't a big one just land recently? And there's a big, right. So um, the there's, you know, there are now, Demaya and the cases predicated on Johnson are really opening the door to lots of challenges to a whole bunch of a, a slew of criminal offenses, most of which aren't terrorism-related, but some of which are. Some which are, yeah. Um, where where the underlying criminal penalty or criminal definitions are sort of these generic terms that just don't really have um, clear lexicogra- lex- lexicographical significance. Yeah. I think it's it's good that the courts in this fashion put pressure on Congress to use much more precision in drafting criminal statutes. Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's a good government move. And, and it's a project that really was you know was spearheaded by Justice Scalia. Oh, I believe that. Um, it's it's also true that as you say, this is going to upset the apple cart on some convictions, and that doesn't mean you can't then go back and. Try again, but maybe it will in some cases, and, and and that's sort of the trade-offs you have when you have retroactive application of these ideas. Totally. Okay, um, I think that leaves us only with a bit of a Supreme Court preview. What's what's cooking? What's pending before the court? So the court's been quiet um, for a while. It's, this is the, the court routinely does this weird little sort of break um, after the January argument session where they don't actually have a regular conference for a couple of weeks, sort of like a, a halftime show, if you will, but with no show. Um, <laughs> Probably more exciting than Maroon 5 is all I'm saying. But we'll get to that. I was going to say, that's coming. Um, although not as exciting as your yellow, blue, and pink socks. Those are excellent. Oh, you noticed that? I yeah, did. sorry, I kicked my shoes off while we're talking. Hey, you know, um, get yeah. comfortable. Stay yeah. a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, the next Saturday, or next Saturday, next Friday, the Supreme Court's meeting for its first conference in a while, and there's a whole lot of stuff on the list for conference, um, including some very important cases that have nothing to do with national security law, and two that are nearer and dearer to our hearts. Um, one is Larrabee. Our petition, uh, our my and my co-counsel petition, challenging the constitutionality of trying retired service members for by court-martial for offenses they commit after they retire. And if I recall correctly, the last time we talked about this might be when there was this outrageous yeah. bit of suggestion out there amongst some commentators that somehow um, our colleague at UT, uh, Bill McRaven, <laughs> formerly our chancellor and the, the retired admiral, that Bill McRaven, when he criticized Trump, and quite rightly and quite persuasively on, on various uh, character-related matters, uh, that in some fashion uh, that was itself a court martialable offense, which, of course, 
it directly implicates this question. Can you drag somebody back in uh, in a context like this where they were exercising their constitutional free speech rights? Yeah, and, and I think the short answer is I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it's it's yet further reason why I, I very much hope the court will take this case. You know, I, you, There's no circuit split because it's a case out of the military justice system. Yeah. So the odds are always long. I do, you know, I'm I'm heartened, as I've said before, by the fact that this that after the Solicitor General waived the government's response, someone called for a response. So so someone's paying attention, um, but we'll see what happens. The other case on the on the list for next Friday, you know, I don't. We talked about before is is the Hamadullin case out of the Fourth Circuit, um, where you have a Russian Taliban fighter um, who was prosecuted in civilian criminal court. Basically arguing that he was entitled to various forms of combatant immunity oh, defenses. That guy. You know, I, I think that's quite a long shot um, yeah, for a certain yeah. grant, but it's an interesting case. And, you know, it's, it, it wouldn't shock me if that case provoked at least some kind of short opinion concurring in the denial of cert that like, you know, because the, the government's position is so strange with regard to the intersection and interaction of Army Regulation 190-8 and the Geneva Conventions and the relevant federal statutes. Should we unpack that later or can you unpack that right now? Um, the strangeness of I, Yeah, it? I mean, so the government basically takes the position um, that all of these sort of international law rules that might otherwise protect Hamadullin are just like overrun by the by the plain text of these criminal statutes, um, right? That you know there don't that you don't get to the question of like a common law combatant immunity problem because the statute just says X. Um, and you know I, the Fourth Circuit didn't quite go that far. I mean the the Fourth Circuit's opinion is narrower than the government's brief in opposition. Um, I just think that there. The government's brief in opposition made this case more interesting, to me at least, than the cert petition did in itself. So I'm going to go read that because, as you know, I care Indeed. a lot about these questions. So maybe, so maybe if you find yeah. stuff in there we're talking about, we can actually yeah, do a, a fuller dive in next week. I will uh, add to my list of things to, <laughs> to, to go read. You and me both. But I don't, my pile's about, you know, as tall as I am. Yeah, it's a surefire way to, to not read it is to throw it <laughs> in the pile. Have you, have you gotten to the point yet where you have, like, folders in your email, like, deal with tomorrow, deal with next week? So... I get around four or 500 emails a day, and I do my level best to, to triage them so that I find the stuff that absolutely has to get responded to. And I can't go a week without discovering that I completely missed something that I absolutely needed to tend to. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of stuff that I'd really like to be able to reply to that I can't. But anyways, everybody's got email troubles. I no, no, no. But but it's like, I mean, so Karen Karen used to think I was making up, like, how much email I get until we were both home when she was on maternity leave with Maddie. Yeah. Um, and we were, like, sitting next to each other in bed. And I was just like, I'd, I'd write yeah. back to one email, and, like, four more would come in. I'm sure you had this experience, too. This will be my last e email complaint. There's a whole okay. genre, right, of, of whining about email. It's got to be, like, <laughs> e-whinging or... The, Whinge mailing. Yeah, I don't know. There should be, yeah. It is whinging though. So let me whinge. I'll just say that uh, there are times where I'll I'll just say, you know, what? I got an hour here. I'm kind of shot from teaching, so I'm just going to like return emails and just plug away. And I find they still come in faster than I can respond to them. It's and really and there's a certain law of mathematics that slowly starts to dawn on you that uh, you're you're not going to get to them all. 
Um, so, you know, I've killed my office voicemail. It just says, like, you know, I don't yeah, answer yeah. this. Uh, uh, I don't check this voicemail. Yeah, so pretty soon, pretty soon email is just going to be an auto-reply. Like, I don't look at these Well, either. we have a mutual friend who has an auto-reply on his email that says, I don't reply to all yeah. of my email. And you know what? I think I think when that first was around, I think some people kind of hit them askance a little bit. But I think it was actually a very honest and very helpful thing to see. Like, look, this is somebody who's got email overload. Don't assume this is going to get seen. And, and brutal honesty is sort of his his calling card. I love it. Um, we skipped one before we go to frivolity. Ah. We've got the Clayman v. Obama DC Circuit opinion to talk about. No, you did talk about it. Did we, well, we didn't run through the details. We just oh, we did, previewed it. Oh, sorry. Right, right. Yeah. We didn't actually go yeah. through it. Yeah, so let me, let me give I, you the quick... This is reflecting how much time I think it merits. <laughs> exactly. Well, and we can spend about as much time as we just did describing it because here's all that's going on. So this is the, the Larry Klayman and others case trying to get injunctive and other relief. Uh, Section 215 bulk meta, metadata collection and then also targeting uh, the possibility of doing the same thing under the FISA pen register trap and trace authority, and for good measure, also challenging Section 702 collection. The district court had dismissed the uh, bulk metadata claim on the uh, rather obvious ground that the USA Freedom Act has already intervened to uh, (laughs) replace old Section 215 in a way that forbids interpretation of it on bulk, as you might say. Yes, you can still kind of access the bulk collections the individual telecom service providers may have, but that's got to be done seriatim with your particular seed number. You go to them, you don't build the haystack yourself, and you certainly can't make citing 215, you can't make the telephone companies now turn over a bulk records. And for, for good measure, Freedom Act also ensures you can't do that under the pen register trap and trace authority. No surprise, the, the procurium says, uh, that's right, this is all moot. Full stop, this is moot. And then that left the 702 challenge. Of course, PRISM 702 is, is still very much alive. Um, but there, there's a standing issue because there's no there's no particular reason to think that Clayman and, and, and kind are actually uh, being caught up in that by dint of the particular people overseas whom they say they are in contact with. Uh, they speculate that they might be. The court says that's all that is. And under the Clapper decision, that's just speculation. It's not good enough for standing. So you're out there as well. Steve, I think all that's exactly what we would have predicted the circuit was going to do. I think, yes, it's what I predicted the circuit would do. I think the standing analysis is a little harder than this Let's let, than this suggests because, I mean, we've talked before about the, the difference between the summary, the, the stage at which the Supreme Court dealt with standing in Clapper, which was the summary judgment stage, versus at the motion to dismiss stage where at least the Fourth Circuit in the Wikimedia case has correctly, in my view, suggested that the analysis is different and that the question is whether the allegations are plausible. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not surprised that this is what the D.C. Circuit said or that it did so in a, in a summary, you know, non-unpublished order. I think even if I was applying your standard, I would still say that these allegations just aren't plausible enough. And, and indeed, yeah. and the Fourth Circuit did that to the, the dragnet allegations um, in Wikimedia. Yep. All right, so we've said what we had to say about things that we actually know about. Ah. Now, now let's have some fun. All right, so tune out if you don't enjoy the frivolity because we have a we, Super Bowl of frivolity. We, we have well, so so just really quickly before we do the Super Bowl frivolity, let me do one non-sports ball frivolity topic, um, which is I know you don't watch it, but the third season of True Detective is. Insanely good. Is that plot or acting or both? All of it. I mean, it is. So first, I mean, Mahershala Ali is stunning. Um, second, the story is gripping, and third, they're doing it in a way that is so interesting and so like not predictable. 
Um, uh-huh. So I really, you know, season one of True Detective with um, I think it was what Woody Harrelson and who else was in? I'm I'm about to feel really stupid, but I, I remember season, really enjoying season one, yeah. and then season two just ran all the way off the rails. Um, with like Vince Vaughn and Rachel McAdams, and it just yikes. Ugh. Um, and so I was I wasn't sure what to expect with season three. If you if you have access to HBO and you aren't watching it, you should start. I mean, this is it is you compelling. May, you may TV. have talked me into this because Heather does like watching some good true crime, and and it's it's I don't so I don't know if it's true crime, but it's 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 certainly or, yeah or a simulacrum plausible plausible true crime. And and I just gotta say, I mean, you know. Everyone else should just, you know, start writing their runner-up speeches now for the Golden Globe for acting in a TV drama series. I mean, this is uh, Mahershala Ali's got this in the bag. Let me ask you this: this will this will affect uh, the chances that we're gonna, you know, make this like the rare evening TV time yeah. for me and Heather. Uh, uh, how is it on the gore side? Is it is not it, gory at all? Gore? Okay, not go- that, so good. it's 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 mystery, not good. not action. Great. All right, okay. You know what? I'm gonna make a pitch. Um, I'm gonna do it. You she, you know, she she loves uh, my favorite murder. The, yeah. the famous podcast. So maybe we could. Uh, uh, you, you know, this is I, I I I'm 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 a strong vote. I mean, Heather, I know you don't listen to this podcast, but watch True Detective all right, season two. All right, sold. Okay, so that's the Super Bowl. That's something that is fun to watch. Right. Let's talk about something that was just like, you know, two out of the three tracks of this, you know, extravaganza were really painful to watch. Uh, I think the only thing I enjoyed were the commercials, and I am very much a football guy. I I wanted to watch that game and enjoy it. I'll say this I thought uh, the defensive game that was uh, run by the Patriots, in particular, uh, changing up their coverage from what they – I can't remember if it was zone to man or man to zone, but they did something really uncharacteristic <coughs> they came out with that the Rams never recovered from. Yeah, and, 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 and the Rams' defense. I mean, how many times do you see you know a Tom Brady, Bill Belichick team burn through two timeouts in the first quarter? Yeah, I know. The, the, the disruption that Aaron Donald and, and Adamican Sue can, can bring on the front line is absolutely terrifying to watch. Um but man, that was just a painful game. It was just so boring. Like, uh, so I'm sitting there saying to myself, if I'm a football coach, I I un- I understand what is interesting about this game. Like, I understand as a sort of chess match, right? What is so remarkable about both of these offenses basically being held in complete check? Yep. That doesn't make it entertaining. Exactly. So it, it might make it like interesting from a you know future strategic perspective but as an entertainment experience i mean three to three at after three no it was, a, it was a catastrophe i'm sure the nfl was hating it and of course it's all what they deserve because of the way they jobbed the same <laughs> and, and, and it, it is quite fitting that even though i called for a rams win 34 31 i just i was off by one decimal place um and and, 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 and the, the order team. in the order yeah no transit properties flip it around i had uh, hey i had the margin just about right i said patriots <laughs> 35 rams 24 so just <laughs> subtract 22 points from each team and i was there all right so it's not even worthy of further discussion except except to say one thing my favorite tweet of the night because there are lots of excellent tweets about the how bad it was um what i don't remember who it was who tweeted this um yeah that that (laughs) that these teams are playing like the winner goes to the white house that was great that was absolutely brilliant um okay so the halftime show which i was preemptively bagging on halftime shows i think you know for the fake weight arm waving crowds the fake enthusiasm just the whole it's a it's a pretend concert it's like watching a a musical that has a concert scene with a fake crowd on stage um, but I really thought that Maroon 5 would be better than that. 
I thought Travis Scott was good. And what, what sucked about that part of the halftime show was that they only gave him, I think, one song. Um, but but they kept bringing Maroon 5 out. And each time, Adam Levine got a little bit more topless. And it just was everything about that I found so unappealing. It was and so white. It was so white. I mean, I, I, I'm not. I'm not going anywhere near that. But I. I like Maroon Five as, as much as the next person. They're, they. They've got it. They're good at coming up with hooks. Yeah. And Adam Levine is an extremely talented singer, obviously. But uh, it just. It didn't feel like they. They didn't seem like they were all that excited to be doing it. And it felt like what it was, which was they were playing an artificial pretend concert. So like. Uh, you know, if if I can sort of tie this back together, like the State of the Union, the Super Bowl halftime show is a pointless, expensive spectacle. Yeah, they got to do something during that uh, during that time slot. But man, that's that was too bad. They should have just let Travis Scott have the whole show. That'd have been better. Indeed. Or just you know get rid of the the fake crowd and the and the constant rah rah fireworks, which are like the visual equivalent of a stadium where they just keep playing the the crowd noise and music kind of. But, I mean, that thing is like. I mean. So I've actually been to a Super Bowl. Um, it was Super Bowl 33. It was a long time ago. Um, no one's in their seats at halftime. Like, you know, people are – halftime's when you get up and walk yeah. around. So I don't know why you're worried about entertaining the people in the stands when the whole point is, you know, to entertain well, the people at home. It, it, it is – that is the whole point, and they're trying to keep people watching. And it worked. Like, I watched that travesty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> contrast it – I think there was some sort of – Although sick, ratings are down. Ratings were way down. Oh, I'm sure – well, no, because it, it started to suck. Yeah. Um, the night before, in Atlanta, part of the Super Bowl celebrations, they had the Foo Fighters and some other incredible guests on stage with, like, Tom Morello got up there. Um, there it was just – I saw a few clips of it. Now, that was a good show. If you want to have a band get up there and, and play a few songs and do it with energy that seems real, get the, get the damn Foo Fighters. Um, all right. So – Ads. There's Ads. I, I general, liked a lot of them. Really? Yeah. Oh, I was I was thoroughly disappointed right. by like eighty percent of them. Well, it goes without saying that a lot of them are going to miss. Like the the mint uh, mint mobile was that was gross. The chunky milk. Um, I thought it was a great night for for Budweiser advertising, and I say that as someone who <laughs> would, I will. I'm a craft beer guy. I can't stand. Oh, did, did you Bud see? Light, did you see but, like the corn growers lobbying association like yeah. come out hard against Budweiser that's, after this? That's ad? their job to do it. I don't blame them, but yeah. I. Of course, the one I want to talk with you about was: Were you as surprised as I was when the Bud Knight turned out to be, a, you know, a crossover ad with Game of Thrones? I was, and I was all for it. Uh, it was awesome. That was, I mean, I, I thought it was great. They, you know, allowing the the mountain to do the head crush and the whole deal. It's like, wow, that's pretty bold. Listen, I was, I so so I, I said eighty percent, right? So so that ad, um, one of I don't remember which T-Mobile ad, but there was one T-Mobile ad that I thought was my marriage in thirty seconds. Um, oh, was it one of the ones? Because T-Mobile kept like giving free stuff away, like go to, go get free tacos. Now you go. No, 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 it wasn't like that. Free. It was um, it was like uh, it was a text message. It was a series of text messages between two partners. Oh right. Oh, I'm sure you're talking about the one where he starts deleting his text, so you see his thoughts. And it turns out like he knows that he's going to lose this, and it's going to be sushi for dinner. Yes, that yeah. one, that one. Yes, no. Where the where, where the partner says, "What should we get for dinner?" And it's like it doesn't matter what I like. Nothing I answer right now is relevant. But he starts. He keeps typing like, "I'd really like tacos." <laughs> right. But he deletes it. I'd re- yeah. That commercial resonated with me in That's ways awesome. that um, I hope Karen doesn't listen to this and find out. That's pretty great. Um, yes. But okay, but what about, ba- what about all the anxiety? The whole the zeitgeist of all the commercials was yeah. technology anxiety. With yeah. everything was robots taking your job. I do think that, by the way, I, 
I can't remember who it was a commercial for, so it didn't work very well. But the one that seems to at first just show robots taking over everything. They outperform on exercise, right. in sports, and in jobs. But then at the end, you know, at the end of the video or the end of the commercial, the guy goes in the bar and all the humans are in there having a good time and the robots out there watching sad in the it rain. Was a, it was a beer commercial, right? But, but I don't remember which one was I don't remember which beer. Oh, no, it was Michelob Light. Yeah. It was either Bud Light or Michelob Light. And it wasn't then. Bud Light. Oh, okay, let me back Jilly on Dilly. one that really I thought was terrible. The Michelob Gold one or whatever that was. Yeah. Or, or no, no, Organic Michelob <laughs> Ultra. That's what it was. So they were doing Michelob Ultra commercials of a good kind and then they had uh, um, Zoe Kravitz, who's, who's wonderful, but... I'm sorry, this ridiculous attempt to, you know, she's looking off into the beautiful waterfall and mm, this great beer is so good because it's organic. Oh, as opposed to all the inorganic beers the rest of us are drinking. Right. It was such a transparent, why don't they just be like, new, gluten-free, you know? It's, it was frustrating. So. Can we talk about the NFL ad? Yeah, the, the 100. 100. So I thought that was pretty great. Pretty great. I thought it was so. The thing about it is, it kept getting better, right? Yes, like it was, yes. it was a two-minute ad, and the first ten or fifteen seconds, I was like, "Oh, cute!" Yeah. Like a little, you know. And then it just it kept accelerating. Yeah, and they, and they sequenced it so it got more and more interesting, like who they were showing and what they had them doing. Um. So I mean, they've got you know when Tom Brady takes off. So part of it is you had to sort of know who the people were, <laughs> right? Absolutely. To, to get all of the inside jokes, well, like Franco Harris. Like so, Franco yeah, Harris yeah. and the Immaculate Reception. That was the best part. Right? I thought. Oh, I've, I'm gonna top you on that but um tom brady takes off his five super bowl rings yeah and, wait but he gives them to baker mayfield oh that's right which hilarious. is like i mean that's like, that's know, like a passing, a, a, the torch. passing the torch yeah i i'm not gonna hold my breath on that yeah. to happen. um deon sanders right I mean, I yeah that was the, the pick by deon sanders was was pretty funny um i mean i thought you know the they picked joe montana didn't he yeah he did um you got the odell beckham joke wait who did who did uh who did Joe Montana wave off? Because I meant to go back to find out. Because someone's like, I'm open. And Joe Montana's He like, waves no. off Michael Irvin. Says, not today, cowboy. That's it. That's right? It. And, he, and he throws it to Jerry Rice. Yeah. Which, of yeah. course, is is totally appropriate. Um, and then Dion comes along. Um, but so um, the Franco Harris thing, Odell with the one-handed catch. Yeah, that was, that was excellent. Um, Sarah Thomas, right? Yeah. That first, the first uh, woman referee. That right? was cool. But come on. Sam Gordon. Right, right at the end of the episode, that this you know eleven, I think she's she eleven now. Like this this superstar girl football player who's trying to sort of revolutionize gender she, equity in football. The, is she the one that also is in the separate commercial? That's anyways. Go ahead. But like, I mean, right, like that was right at the end of the commercial, and I was there for that. I was like, yes, NFL. I don't like almost all of the corporate stuff you do. But this I approve of. Uh, you know, woke advertising is always something to keep an eye on the bottom line. And But, you know, I think the NFL's obviously had its huge issues uh, relating to yeah. Colin Kaepernick. Yep. And, and I, I imagine the right way to look at this from a sort of an advertising perspective is a clever attempt to pivot to a different issue, but that could perhaps rehab them a bit. Right. I mean, if, right, if the ad ended with, like, you know, Kaepernick outside taking a knee, like... That might have been a little different. That would have been a little hard to explain. Why, why is the NFL owning that? That yeah. seems no, like they're, they're not allowed. So listen, I, I'm not excusing any of the NFL's behavior. My point is just it was a fantastic ad. Yeah, no, it was, it was good stuff. Um, it, was, it, was, it was the most entertaining two minutes of the entire evening. Okay, so thinking about you know, the corporate league management made me think about the word out of some of the winter negotiations for MLB, uh, these rule changes they're talking about. Have you heard some of those? I have. What do you? Okay, so one rule change I heard that I thought sounded fascinating was pitcher comes in. Three batters. Three batters. Yeah. I like it. Um, Because it slows the game down so much. I understand that. I just, I, so here's what, first of all, um, 
there are things that I don't like, right? One, you're going to get people fading injuries um, because there's an exception for injuries, mm-hmm. right? And yep. so, you know, every now and then, so oh, well, I, okay, I, so I you, atta- tight- you attach a you're out for the week minimum. Like, there's if you if you go out well, for an but injury, but you can't do that. You can't do that because someone could be pulled just because like they have they felt a twinge in something, right? No, I no, mean, but like then they're out for a week. They're on they're on the, the five day special designated list. That's, and, that, that's and that will prevent big. feigning unless yeah. it's absolutely, you know, you, you might not be able to have this rule maybe for the playoffs. Yeah. And maybe well, you don't want thing. that rule for the playoffs. Well, that's the thing. And so, but then do you really want the playoffs being played pursuant to different rules than the rest of the, right? right. Um, second, I mean, I, you know, as a as, as someone who was a mediocre left-handed pitcher in high school, right? You're this worried about like, the job loss? I'm worried about the, you know, this is the left, this gets rid of the job of the lefty specialist, Right. Yeah. And it seems like I mean I'm all for pace of play concerns, but it seems like you know why not try some of the other stuff first, and then like because this is drastic compared to some of the other things. All right. So what about this as a half measure? Say uh, you already have the idea of a shot clock yeah. on the a pitch no, clock. They're talking about pitch. No, clock. no. But but the problem with the pitching change is the delay. You go to a commercial while they yeah. take the warm pitches. No more of that. You warm up as in much as you're going to warm up yeah, yeah. in the bullpen, and you you don't get to walk in. Yeah. You run in. Yeah. And because there's a clock. If there's going to be a pitching change, you signal it, and then it's exciting because it's like you've yeah. got 45 seconds to run in there and get that pitch off. So, so I would just that say, would actually, I, I'd I, like to see I, that. I would be okay with with some version of that. And some of the some of the more uh, rotund relievers <laughs> watching them sort of like busting it to the mound. I would still like to give them one warm up pitch just because like you know mounds aren't always the same. Like just you know, let yeah, them get okay. there and throw uh, one, one warm up pitch. pitch and have it on the same clock. Yeah. A, you 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 have to get out there within a certain number of yeah, seconds and throw one pitch. That prevents you from walking. Yep. No, I've I've never understood why we I I, I mean the, the whole sort of coming at like when I pitched in high school I hated warm up pitches. Cause I was like, just you're just wasting bullets at that point. Yeah, like yeah. you know, I'm I'm ready to go. Let's go. All like, right. So I like this. I actually I'm increasingly excited because then the music you select as you're like coming to the mound, you have to run anyways. <laughs> so everybody's going for very exciting music. You're sprinting across the field. The clock's going. If you trip. If you uh, if something goes wrong, you're not that fast. It starts getting a little tense. It adds it adds some of the fun that you get in NFL situations. I'm just where picturing the clock Bar- I'm, just, I'm just picturing Bartolo Colon. That's to exactly what I'm picturing. Um, I think that'd be a fun rule change. So, but but on the flip side, they're talking about a DH in the National League, right? Yeah, it's like, I know. Come on. So so I, I'm all for improving pace of play. Um, they're also talking about lowering the mound. It's like what. Lower on the mound so we can have like fifteen to thirteen games. I mean, come on. No, like, no, yeah, I don't. I don't think that. I think they should focus on time management yep, without yep. altering the nature of I agree. what's actually played. I agree, but place. that's that's why I worry about the three batter minimum rule. Yeah, because that's changing. That's changing strategy and not just timing. Yeah, it it is. I. How long would you say we've had the current arrangement of the? The, the one-out specialist used routinely. Yeah. So it's not so deeply rooted that my sort of traditionalist baseball yeah, yeah. roots are... No, I understand. Um, okay. But all this is to say, pitchers and catchers report soon. Do you think this will be the year we can get a, a faculty uh, fancy league going? There never seem to be quite enough people. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. But, and, and, you know, of course, as as we have so much free time. Exactly. No, so. I know. All right. I think we've run the course. Indeed. Um, Watch your detective... Uh, tell your friends about the podcast. Go online and give us ratings. We, I think, oh, and uh, let us know what you think about the AMA idea. Oh yeah, if and, and I think is the idea, Steve, that it, it a true AMA. Ask anything you yeah. want. You can, and, and, and we'll and we'll break like we'll we'll take questions over like Twitter and email. It's like personal right? stuff. We'll organize them and then yeah. we'll we'll do a podcast where we just answer listener questions. I guess what we could do is we could hold that out there. 
And if and when we ever accumulate enough to have more than 15 or 20 minutes of conversation, we could do that. And maybe some of the questions will spark us to go down paths we wouldn't have thought to talk about before. People could ask things like, you know, what's this about rumors of secret episodes where there have been recordings of this that none of y'all have ever heard? Most of y'all have never heard. There are now two. There's at least two, right? At least two. I'm aware of two. I'm aware of two. That's right. Right there, there's the there's the bootleg episode one um, that would be a massive no. violation of, of copyright law. I think there's three. There's three. There's there's well that this is all part of the fun. There's three. You'll be with me. Okay. One was very short. Okay. Oh well, that's not that wasn't a real episode. Uh, it was real enough. Fine. All right, two right. There are two and a half. <laughs> two and a half episodes. Um, anyway, so you know, um, if you like the AMA idea, both let us know that you like it and start suggesting questions. Um, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. This was episode 109. Stay safe out there. Adios.